Okay. Okay, so this is off the cuff this if time. If we cuss a lot, can we, does that get parts edited too? Beep. No. <laughs> Just try not to swear. Try real hard. Really hard. <laughs> like we're on a 90s sitcom yeah basically we are there we go hey guys thank you You always get to do the introduction (laughs) i'm relatively good at it okay go ahead you got this hi guys and welcome (laughs) back to this week's episode of you asked we answered i'm cat the dog trainer he's the guy with the pink gun and we have a couple guests with us today We have Annie and Charles. They are really good friends of ours. We've known them for a very long time. They have a few dogs from us. They have some of their own breedings that they do. They are also very involved in training dogs and uh, the Nob organization as well. So do you guys want to tell us a little bit more about yourselves or have I taken care of that introduction for you? You did a really good job, Kat. You're a professional. I think you should do it every time. See, Ethan? If this is your guys' first time tuning in, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of our great videos. And we also have a podcast of this version. Yeah, he's pointing um, where you can subscribe to. So I thought it was over here. I think it's on no, the it's left. definitely over, over there. Okay, yeah. sorry. Oh, the, and ring the bell. Hit the bell for Hit notifications. Bell. That's right. Oh, oh, there's no bell. Ding. <laughs> Thanks for the sound effects. So with. <laughs> That's kind of a bell. Yeah. Ish. Ish. (laughs) Moving on. As we digress so early (laughs) into this. We are actually going to get started right away. This was a question that was actually emailed in. So people are always asking, how can I submit questions for Yawa? Well, you can do that anyway. You can send an email. You can send a message. You can post a comment when we ask for questions. You can reply to our story posts. Uh, any way that you can get in contact with us is a great way to ask a question for our Yawas. So, question from email from Lee Abbott. I'd love to see a Yawa on what can be expected from the time you submit your application for testing up to and including the time it's your turn to run through a NAVDA test. Example, when do you learn about running orders, etc. And this is a really great opportunity to answer this question because Annie here has done a lot of test secretarying through NAVDA as well as she is their chapter's secretary currently. For a different chapter, but yes. For a different chapter. Yep. Okay. She wears lots of hats. I do. This is her dog training hat actually right now. Right here. Ooh, pretty. So, Annie, can you give us a little bit of... a little bit of insight into what someone can expect, at least from you and your chapter, because yep. every chapter is different. Um, everybody that is a test secretary <clears throat> is a volunteer, so they're giving up their time, not getting paid a whole lot, zero dollars, to do this. So uh, some people have really great organizational skills and <laughs> are almost like obsessive compulsive about getting things organized and keeping in contact with people. And some people that are volunteers aren't necessarily so. Uh, but if you had entered your test with Matt, Annie here, yeah, this is what uh, you expect. <laughs> so usually um, you'll find the information on navda.org. Yep. Correct? All right. On who the test secretary is. And we'll have an email address. So you'd typically you'd email me my personal email address. I would send you a confirmation email back, just letting you know 
hey, I got your application. Because sometimes we have people that submit applications six to eight months in advance. Like as soon as we get the test posted, they're sending us the application. And obviously that early on, we don't have very many details on exactly what time we're starting, the running order, all of that. And then if I notice anything on your application that may be blank, I may ask you for that information. So that's kind of another plug when you're filling out the application just to make sure all of your information is filled in. Um, sometimes we do get people who they don't have a number for their dog, and that's perfectly fine because you may have just gotten your puppy and you haven't gotten your number yet. As soon as you get that, you can just email me. So I just try to keep the lines of communication as open as possible. And then as we get closer to the test, um, usually within like a month before the test, I'll send out more details on exactly what time we're starting, um, a draft running order. Uh, as a test secretary, things are typically changing anywhere um, up to a week to the day before or day of for the test. So uh, we'll send out a draft running order well, my chapter will at least, and then you can kind of see where you're at there. So it's just really important. We have to do a lot of work on our end as test secretaries to make sure that you have your NAVDA number is current and active, and then whoever's the owner and handler, and then also your dog has a number. We need to know date of birth to make sure your dog's not aged out before the test. So, And that's only applicable to the natural ability yep, test. Natural ability, yep, um, for age. Yep, utility or UPT test. There's no age limit on that test, so um, not necessarily as pertinent about checking dates of birth, yep. but definitely for the natural ability test. Yep, that's super important. So we just try to be as open, and I just encourage people, if you have questions, to let us know. But like Kat said, we're all volunteers, so I have a full-time job outside of it. So it may be a day or two before we get back to you. At least or I will get back to weekend. you. Some or people, even the weekend. Some people don't get a chance to check in with those emails until the weekend. Um, and usually the test secretaries are also really good about letting people know if there's going to be lunches provided or if there's going to be a no host dinner or a chapter provided dinner for donation um, at the test site. Uh, they can also make recommendations of places to stay. If you need to get a hotel, they typically can get you that information. Um, so if they don't offer that information up, but it's something that you need, ask questions. Um, Everybody wants to be helpful. They just don't always know what people need to know, what they don't know. Uh, typically with natural ability, you're going to run into a lot of first-time first time handlers. Handlers yep. <laughs> that have a lot of questions. And as they progress through the testing program, they're going to be more comfortable, kind of know the ropes, what's going on, and maybe we'll have fewer questions. Um, but and, so, and sometimes you just the test secretaries have done it for so long that they get used to people who have, they just know the ropes. So sometimes they don't think to put certain information in just because it's just something that, you know, everybody in their chapter knows. And so, you know, they may say, nature. they may say, hey, we're going to go over to the B field. And you've never been to that chapter. You have no idea what the B field means. So just feel free, ask questions. Um, there is a field marshal. Yep. That is very helpful the day of the test because the test secretary takes care of all the paperwork. But then typically at the test, they're kind of just handling paperwork. Then when you yep. get to the test, there's a field marshal that helps keep the test running smoothly. They make sure that the judges have the things that they need. They make sure that the bird planners are organized and have the birds ready. They make sure that the handlers and owners are headed to the right direction. They are kind of like herding cats um, at some of these tests. Yes, that's an accurate description. <laughs> a lot of times when you first get to the test, 
the test secretary will probably be the person that you get contact with first. Um, and then from there, they'll say where you're going to go. And then usually there'll be judge introductions. And, and then the judges will generally point to the who's going to be the field marshal and explain, follow this person. Yes. Any questions, ask them. And I think that one thing that people don't understand necessarily about the NAVDA tests um, and the way that the running order works. So let's say you're running a natural ability dog. The maximum number of dogs that can be ran at a test is 10, and you may be the third dog on the list. Well, that doesn't mean you are the third dog that runs through every portion of that test, and then you head home. Uh, the test is actually run in... Uh, field portion, tracking portion, water portion, if you're running natural ability. And that can be subject to change as well, depending on weather and circumstances, field availability. Uh, and it's always up to the judge's discretion of what they want to do, where they want to move forward to. But you will actually follow your running order. So if you're dog three, you're following dog two after every portion of that test. So it's not like you come, you do your part, and you take off. You're there all day. And you get to watch other dogs run. You get to interact with a lot of people that have the same passion as you do about training their dog. They put a lot of time into this puppy. Or, you know, if we're talking about utility or UPT, a lot of time into these more finished dogs. And it's a great way to build camaraderie, join people that um, are from all over the U.S. sometimes at some of these tests that you might not have had an opportunity to meet and learn about them, as well as you'll get to see lots of different breeds typically too. I mean, if you have a short hair, you might actually get to see a Munsterlander or a Brock Francais or a Brocco Italiano that you're like, whoa, I've never seen this breed before. So it's a really great networking experience as well at these tests. And then, um, like I said, you're going to follow that dog through the entire test and continue watching and learning from everybody else that's going on. And then at the end of the day, the judges are going to deliberate, um, depending on what they got to see that day. It can be short deliberation or it can take a little bit longer. And then they'll do kind of a recap of the day and read scores. And that's when you're going to find out how your dog did throughout each portion of the test. And at that time, if you have questions, that's when you need to approach the judges, ask your questions. Um, they're going to tell you what they saw that day and explain why they scored your dog the way that they did. And that's one thing that, especially if you're new, I know it can seem a little intimidating, but it's really, really important. Please go talk to the judges. They, they want to hear from you, especially if you had a rough day. You know, if you, if you got a 112 prize one, you're probably like, woo, and you just, you know, thanks judges. And, but if something happened, it, you have to learn and not knowing necessarily Maybe you didn't see something or you can miss something because you're caught up in the moment. So I always stress to people, please talk to the judges yes. after the test. Because what happens is, is the next day you go, why in the heck did I get a two? And, and the people that could answer that question were standing there and, and want to answer the question for you. And, you know, the next day isn't the day to try and contact any of those judges because uh, like we all say at the end of the day, we put those scorecards away. We mail them into the main office. And I don't remember exactly what happened with every single dog that we saw that day, because we see a lot of dogs in a weekend. We see a lot of dogs in an entire hunt testing season and the um, situations start to blur together. So the time to ask the questions is then in the moment when the judges are all together, they have their scorecards available with copious notes on the back of their cards that they can refer to, to answer your questions. 
the thing not to do is to go on Facebook and post on a forum, why did I get a two? My dog obviously did this perfectly because it's perfect. And then everybody go, oh, wow, well, that sounds like you recall it perfectly. Those judges obviously screwed you. It's not the case. Nobody's there to do that. Everybody's there to give your dog the best shot. And it goes in any testing or organization that way. I mean, ask the judges. They saw it. They made a decision based on what they saw that day. And nobody else can, um, except for somebody that was there and saw it firsthand, can tell you what happened. So, The yes. other thing I would suggest if, say, your dog seven of the day is ask a handler beginning in the day if you've never done it before, um, if they would mind you walking with in the field portion if you're curious on what it is. Um, if they give you the okay and the senior judge is okay with it, you can walk with and kind of see what the field portion is like. Um, as a field marshal, uh, I've suggested that a lot of times. And it's usually everyone usually says it's okay to walk with. Obviously, there isn't 10 people walking with. But it definitely helps with the first-time jitters of kind of walking along and you can see kind of what the expectation is. And, yeah, you're running your dog in a field for 20 minutes, but it's it makes it a lot easier when you go out in the field and you kind of see what it is. Um, it's not as intimidating as it sounds. It's fairly easy. But I definitely suggest walking with at least one of the first runs and then, obviously, you just kind of have to watch the tracks ahead of you. You can't really see much usually on those. And water, you can kind of see how it is. But that's also the importance of going to some local chapter training days is they might have mock tests to kind of walk through kind of how your day may go. So definitely participate in those if you can. Yes, and be familiar with the rules and aims book. It's there. It's a resource for a reason. Uh, going to a natural ability test or a UPT test or a utility test and not even having cracked that book, you're going to be at a huge disadvantage of knowing what to even expect for that day. Um, and if you can read through those rule books, ask questions at your training days so that you can be familiar with what you truly need to know, what you can and cannot get away with, um, going to a handler's clinic, I think they're renaming them Ames and Rules Ames Clinics, and rules clinics yep. um, would be also great because they are going to explain those rules and what the judges are going to be looking for so that you can be as prepared as possible for test day. Well, I don't know a single chapter, and this may be putting my foot in my mouth, but that doesn't have at least one judge that's part of it or something that's around there. And every single one of those chapters also has mock tests or almost all of them you know they have some setup or that training they can show days you. of some sort yeah that they can go over parts of training the training days there. that they set up as much to be similar so you can go you know this is what it's going to be like this is not your test day but this is what it's going to be like so and you can when you find that information on the on the website to get your test signed up for your test there's also a link there to the chapter website or chapter contact so whether that's a Facebook page or a web page, and that also can get you information on uh, if they're going to have a mock test maybe the month before. If Even if it's a little bit of a drive, maybe if it's your first time, it'd be worth driving over and, and checking the chapter out and kind of you'd get to see the grounds and you'd get to go ahead and participate in their mock test. A lot, of the, a lot of the Midwest chapters do that anyway. And not only go to these tests to observe, but if you become really involved in your chapter, you're going to be able to volunteer. You're going to learn a lot more by watching other dogs work and other handlers work with their dogs. And you'll potentially be able to see, well, I'm prepping my dog for natural ability, but these people over here are prepping for utility. And wow, 
that's a whole other ball game. And that's something that I would love if my dog could be able to do. And if you have that end goal in sight and have a better idea of where you could be going with your puppy, that you can go, this is a stepping stone. Natural ability is a really great start to judge for natural ability, see what your dog has the potential to be, but then also say, it's just the ground step. You know, it's the it's the door to this whole world of dog training and preparation that you can do to prepare not only your dog for these tests, but also these dogs that are prepared for these tests, which I really feel that the NAVDA testing system is trying to judge and produce dogs that are very realistic hunting dogs, very versatile hunting dogs. So if your dogs can perform at these levels of tests, whether it's a prize one, prize two, prize three, or even if you fall short of that prize, that still means that you have a very well-trained, polished dog that would be a joy to hunt behind. Agreed. hundred percent. I've, I've used all of my utility training in ways that I never think of using it. Um, you know, I never used to heal dogs in and out of you know, the parking lot or public hunting area, you just let them out of the truck and away we go. Well, when you come up to the, that area and there's three guys with two dogs and you don't know what's going on, just the simple thing of being able to heal your dog and heal up to your truck and have them loaded up. That's something that I didn't do before I started uh, training towards utility. So. Yes. That level of obedience and control not only um, makes your dog a little bit under control heading to the field, but is just safer all around to have them under that level of obedient control. And along with that, if you are at a natural ability test and you see that they're running utility dogs, either that day with you or maybe somewhere else and you get done early, try to check it out. Um, Again, like NA, it's a little bit different because there is live fire in the field with UPT and, and utility. So there's some safety requirements and some things that depending on what's going on, you may or may not be able to walk in the field, but um, usually you can see part of the test, um, and, from the gallery. And, yeah. And so get an idea of what it looks like. I mean, it got me hooked. <laughs> and also volunteer. We love volunteers. Sometimes we're shorter than others, but that's one way to get your foot in the door and kind of see a lot more of the tests and how it goes is get out there and volunteer, whether it's planting birds or, you know, offering to be a field marshal or help handling pheasants for the track. Catching birds. I mean, catching that, birds. everything, yep. there's a level of volunteerism, even preparing the meals, the lunches, getting the snacks ready for the judges and picking up waters and things like that. This entire organization is all volunteerism. The test secretaries, the field marshals, the bird handlers, the gunners, the judges, they're all volunteers. Nobody gets a paycheck. We're all volunteering our time. So if you can add to that volunteerism, you're definitely going to be able to give back to the organization and it's going to be very much appreciated. Best view of a test from a volunteer. That's right. <laughs> All right. See the most. On that note, I think we covered a big portion of what it looks like moving through beginning stages and everything else. What do we got for our next question? We're going to actually go through a couple of shotgun questions. We like to call these our lightning round, where we're going to try and get through just a few extra. <laughs> Oops, wrong button. <laughs> Thanks. Nailed it. Yeah, nailed it. Um, a few extra questions just so that we can answer. Nope, not the right one either. <laughs> just keep pushing them. You'll see which button works. You need to get some stickers for those. <laughs> lightning round. Uh, that was better. Okay, enough. I'm asking okay. my lightning round questions. <laughs> From Instagram, Annie underscore GSD. I love doing tricks. German and a- Shepherd. 
I'm assuming, but I love doing tricks and agility and hunting with my dogs. Would a GSP be a good fit? Uh, the answer is yes, 100%. Have you seen that guy with the crazy yellow and red suit that runs the agility course? Yeah. That's like yeah. a Facebook it's a video. video. Everybody's seen it. Yep. It's amazing. Uh, I think that you're going to see a lot of athleticism and as willingness far as to work, willingness trainability. To work, trainability, desire to please. Not that other hunting breeds don't have that, but short hairs are probably at the at the top of the list. We're kind of biased a little bit. Because they're basically the best. Are. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. But that bias actually comes from you experience. Know, experience with a lot of different breeds. And not that each breed doesn't have a place. They all have good dogs. There's really good dogs in every single breed. Um, Absolutely. I think that you've got a good shot at that higher energy, desire to work, desire to please, all of those kind of things wrapped up in short hair. Yes. So next quick question from Joey Salazar on Instagram. My puppy has diarrhea. What do you do to help your dogs? Uh, So diarrhea is something that happens with dogs, period. I think it happens with people too. If it's bad, go to the vet first. (laughs) Yes. If there's definitely... Dogs acting lethargic, lack of appetite. You just act, you know, your dog just explosive diarrhea, can't keep anything in them. Uh, vet. If you're ever super concerned, that is your go-to to make sure that everything's okay. And uh, for a long period. If it's been, you know, if it's one gone a couple of, right. If it's gone over be. three days, there's probably, you're going to have to, you know, three or four days, you're going to have some problems. You're going to yeah. get that checked yeah. out. And especially depending on the age of your puppy too, um, Dehydration is your number one enemy with diarrhea because what's going in them is going straight out of them in liquid form, and um, they're not able to keep any of that liquid and hydration in, and that's going to put them down and under the weather pretty quickly as well. If um, it's been a short period of time and you know that maybe something potentially happened from just a general stress standpoint or you went for a long run or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. There's typically our go-to stressors that we think about. So traveling with our dogs can be stressful. Um, Exercising them when it's extra hot out can be stressful as well as changing their diet can be stressful. Even if it's changing their diet in the sense that they got an extra chew bone or treat or something that is extra rich. Those are all things that can stress their bodies out a little bit, and they deal with stress by having diarrhea a lot of times. When it's their first birthday and you give them a steak, it usually results <laughs> in diarrhea. Yeah, Ooh, so don't do it. Terrible decision. Um, yeah. So those type of things are usually chalked up to stress um, and should be able to be overcome fairly quickly with maybe withholding one meal. Um, the thing is what's going in them is coming right out of them. So maybe we shouldn't put any more slow that GI track down just a little bit. Yeah. Anything else in there that's going to irritate it more in their tummies right now, keep up their fluids, add a probiotic so that their bodies can go, okay, I get a chance to calm down and readjust and then restart their digestive tract the next day with a meal. And if you can make it a blander meal, boiling chicken or just plain hamburger with some rice, just very bland, easily digestible. And adding that into their diet before the kibble and then see how it goes. But again, like Charles said, and I think we've all mentioned, if you're concerned and it's been going on a long time and you've made some changes and you don't notice any new stressors in the environment that could have caused this, there could be something else going on and definitely seek veterinarian help. We are not vets. No, no. nope, nope, nope. Just dog enthusiasts. That stayed at a Holiday Inn. <laughs> 
Okay. Oh, <laughs> I think you hit the wrong button again. No, that was definitely the right button. Uh, At least it was the button that I was hey! pushing. There we go. Okay, last question for this episode of Yawa. What is your favorite thing to hunt? Where and why? And I think that we all should get an opportunity to answer this one. Me first? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bob White quail in like the traditional uh, hedgerow, fence row. Definitely my favorite. So Kansas, Nebraska, a little bit of Iowa, but that traditional Kansas Bob White covey flush gets me real excited every time. Why are you looking at me like that? Oh, well, I can only say one because I've only hunted one species, and that would be uh, the pheasant. The pheasant. <laughs> and I think I've only... Rooster, rooster, rooster. Rooster, rooster. I've only hunted in Iowa, but that's just because where we live, so... Do you have a, like, go-to, I would love to go on this hunt someday, Charles, damn it, take me with you? Oh, uh, yeah, Argentina <laughs> for doves <laughs> or ducks, and we're nice and hopefully easy. planning that next year. So. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that is amazing. Yeah, That see? would be really cool. Okay, Ethan. Your turn. It's in order. I can't just pick one. So I got to go on my first... Canada goose hunt, um, but I actually shot a goose. I've been on one other one before in layout blinds, didn't turn out real well, never saw a single goose. So up until that point, it was probably not my favorite, but got to go on one this year and it was guided. So it was really nice. I didn't have to get up early, set out any decoys. (laughs) The blind was already perfect. It was a pit blind, um, heated. So I would say- Did they make you breakfast in the blind? Actually, they did not because we were done before breakfast. <laughs> so we <Lucky>. actually <laughs> got to go have breakfast. At the I hit the wrong button again. <laughs> but um, so that would have been what I said was a really fun, awesome experience. Um, I also have like a dream go to hunt that I want to do. Like, damn it, Ethan, take me along. Um, and this time I'm going to go with him because he got to go out to Montana, Sharptail hunting and I think this year we're actually doing a similar trip um, but we're going to go to Hell's Canyon with lots of species. So Chucka. Chucker and quail and The laughing huns. little devils. <laughs> As you watch them fly yeah. away well, after you climbed 4,000 feet. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to definitely be a test of endurance for us and the dogs but I think it's an experience of a lifetime and I'm really excited for that. So the question was, if you could choose one, what was no. your favorite? What is your favorite? But Annie and I have had limited Less experience, experience. Yes. compared to you guys, so we also have our dream hunt that we threw in there. I, well, I have a dream. We don't, we don't care. Right. <laughs> it's scary, huh? Wrong button. <laughs> there. Okay, um, as I'm far as it. a... You know, and this is this is not a cop out because it's the truth. I mean, if I were to pick one species or whatever, I mean, it's just chasing birds with dogs. It is chasing birds with dogs. Now, if I could pick, it's not a cop out. Cop out. <laughs> Hit the button. It's not a cop out. It I is, agree with you. But I do agree I with you. As well. It is chasing. It is chasing the birds with the dogs because I love hunting quail. I love hunting pheasants. I love hunting sharp tail. And, um, I would say I can't use the, the four letter L word for uh, rough grouse hunting, but I enjoy doing that, but I it's wouldn't a challenge. Yeah. And you I don't get to see quite as love. much dog work typically. Um, in the- 
And I know other like people that. would disagree when you see with it. That, yeah. So if you were offered a pheasant hunt, a quail hunt, or a rough grouse hunt, or sharp tail, or sharp tail hunt, if I had to pick, yeah, if you which have to one pick, of those what is your would favorite? be your favorite of those four or three? Because rough grouse hunt somewhere in Nebraska, Kansas, or Iowa, where you can get I didn't quail and pheasants. Ask you. Oh, sorry. You had your turn, Charles. Yeah. Well, I have never <laughs> shot a Hungarian partridge, and that is definitely on my list. So it's going Still to be not an the avoider. Question. Avoider. That, I'm going to use I'm the vibrate. I'm going to say that, that is be my until you answer the that's question. your dream hunt. Okay. Now, now what's your what is favorite? your favorite? Um, I'm going I'm I'm going to say quail hunting with my buddy Dan in South Texas. That is my favorite. There you oh, go. Perfect. Good job. We Yay. finally it got only him took to answer two the question. You hit the clapping sound. You don't even know which one it is. Yes. <laughs> Just for the record, she's hit two buttons. They've both been right. You've hit a lot of buttons. They've all been wrong. Stop. <laughs> yes, I've hit all the wrong buttons. All right, guys. Uh, that is all we have for today. Thanks for watching. I am the guy with the pink gun. I'm Cat the Dog Trainer. Question mark. I'm Annie. And I'm Charles. Guys, Thank you, we'll guys. Be, we'll be back soon. <laughs> and I'm going to continue to cut Cat off. So tune in for more cat cutoffs. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Wrong button. my Instagram handle was better, I'd use it. Roaming Versatiles? Yeah. That's not terrible. That's not terrible. Yeah, it I thought you were cat the dog trainer, It's, it's no guy with the pink gun. Or cat the dog trainer. Are we recording? Oh, we are. Just so you know, for any amount of... I'll start taking offers to tell the origin story of the pink gun. <laughs> but I'm going to need some serious offers. Don't play with me. <laughs> Uh, you know, and honestly, you are probably one of the few people that does actually know. For There's three in the whole world, and they're right one, two, three. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's a closely guarded secret. Yeah, and I hold the dollar, so... <laughs> he does. He still has it in his wallet. I know. The dollar's important. Not okay. a dollar. The, the dollar. dollar. The dollar. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Yawa. This is part two this week. We have our guests, Annie and Charles, and I'm doing the introduction this time because I do a better job than Kat. <clears throat> Throw it in the comments below. What do you think? Is Kat or I better at introducing this series? Well, we don't have to guess who's better at reading the questions. No. No contest. No contest. Definitely me. Ethan can't even I read can't a read. three sentence question without stumbling. So we're going to start answering questions. There was definitely a theme with the questions this time. And we got so many great questions, probably at least 80 questions. So we tried to categorize them a yes. little bit. I want to, I want to preface that just real quick here. He's back on interrupting um, you. Yeah. Interrupting. No. The interrupting, interrupting cat. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cat. Interrupting cow. Um, you've not heard this joke? 
<laughs> I've heard this joke. Okay, we got to tell you, honey. Oh, okay. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting cow. No. <laughs> okay. So all I'm getting at is that you. we really appreciate y'all. We appreciate the fact that you have questions and you feel comfortable and want to reach out to us. And we apologize for not being able to answer all of them. But we do want you to know that the reason why we don't get to all of them is because there literally were 80 questions this week. So we will continue to try and move through them. Go, Kat. Through Kat. Okay. So like I was saying before, I was so rudely mood and interrupted by the interrupting cow over here. Wow. We had a very thematic number of questions about e-collars. And so we're going to kind of try and answer Lot, most, lots and lots of, most of these questions about e-collars in this episode. So first question from Eno, the GSP on Instagram, help. Our GSP is great during recall training, but when another dog walks by, he doesn't listen. Okay, so that is, I mean, without sounding short or rude or anything else, that's it's a pretty good idea that you're not finished with collar conditioning. And maybe you haven't even started, because you just said recall training. Maybe you've done mostly positive-based recall training, and that is really good in controlled environments when your puppy wants to work, your dog wants to work for that treat, when the treat has a higher value than what they want to do, which is... Um, in those higher distracting situations, typically sniffing something else, playing with the other dog, running off. Those things, if you're only doing positive-based training with treats as rewards, uh, those things are typically more important to the dog in those situations than that little treat that you've got, even when you're out there shaking your little bag of treats. Come on, Fido, please come back. They're like, meh, birds, rabbits, squirrels, outside, I don't care. And Other for, dogs, it for looks like. For all of you, all positivers out there, we understand also that if we are shaking bags of treats, we're not doing our positive reinforcement training properly. Yes, we know that. But <laughs> I believe that that's a pretty common thing that a lot of people resort to as if that is positive training, that they get the treat bag out. We're just baiting and bribing it. at that point. Yes. I'm not going to lie. I've done it before. Oh, I think well, we I all I think we've have. all done it at some point in time. It's but like, it doesn't always work, and that's because the reason that it doesn't work is because that treat, that bowl of food, that whatever, that bait isn't of a high enough value to pull the dog's focus back to us. So whether you've started with collar conditioning or not, that would be our recommendation of using collar conditioning to recall um, to be able to reinforce that recall training in those higher distracting situations. Uh, but you can't just throw a collar on a dog and push the button and think that they're going to come back. You have to do the training. It's to a great get there. way to ruin things. Yes. And you also can't do it in the hallway and then roll right to the dog park and expect your dog to come running to you from the pack of dogs either. Uh, so there, there's a a proofing process, right? There's a stepping up, to, especially when you're dealing with distractions. Definitely when you're dealing with distractions, which actually leads us into our next question. I'm going to, these are really great questions and they're very relatable. So I'm going to use them to segue into the next one easily from R underscore college 05 on Instagram, e-collar training, how to start, when to vibrate versus stim. Typically when we're starting to introduce any of our new cues that they've already learned through positive reinforcement, we're going to start vibrate conditioning those behaviors, whether it's for recall, it's for place training, 
we can use vibrate in those controlled situations because vibrate's typically enough. Then we need to be able to transition to using actual stimulation also in those controlled environments when the dog is focused so that they can also understand that the stimulation, the continuous stimulation means the same thing. It's shut off the same way as vibrate by complying with what we're asking them to do, which is something they already know how to do. Then we can start using a little bit more stimulation until we're sure that we're getting a direct response based on that stimulation in those controlled situations so that when we need more stimulation in those high distraction situations, it's available. And, and, all, it, and the dog's going to respond properly. And it's all proof. You don't, you don't do vibrate, do a one continuous, and then again, just step it up. You, you're slowly working up. You're building a up. A conditioning process right. for everything. Yep. And um, I also want to mention that you can't just say, well, this is the level that my dog always responds to because it's not the same. The situation, uh, even the environment, temperature, and humidity is going to change how that collar connects with the dog, how they respond to the collar. Even the dog's mental um, level of exhaustion or focus is going to change how they react to the collar and what level they're going to respond to in any sure. given situation. Um, that outside stimulus of distractions, other dogs, birds, things like that are going to be a huge distraction to those dogs and different levels are going to be necessary to get through those distractions. Was that one when to start too? Um, how to start and when to use vibrate versus stem. Okay. So okay. we say when to use one versus the other. Basically, um, once you've proofed the collar and they understand that those levels of stimulation, higher levels of stimulation if necessary, mean the same thing as vibrate, we can say, I'm going to try and get my dog to respond with vibrate. But I know when they're chasing a bird that that's not going to cut it. And so I know that at those times I'm going to need stimulation. We always use the lowest level of stimulation necessary to get the desired response. Um, but don't go into it thinking, I'm going to give him, you know, if you know your dog doesn't listen, say you're hunting and the dog's chasing Yeah, don't a just bird. try vibrate. Don't try first. vibrate. You know it's not going to work. It, it, it's That's just, where I made the mistake with the vibrate and beeper collar with my dog, Nix. We talked about this, about <laughs> the biggest mistakes we've ever made training. So check out that Yawa video if you want to hear that story. I made a mistake. I know it's hard to believe. It really is. Um, but Ethan also made a mistake and talked about it in that video. So Whoa. that's easier to believe. Ah. I saved it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the other side of it, I think, that comes into is the difference between the two. I mean, and when to use them. I've actually heard from some other trainers that don't primarily work with sporting breeds like we do. We, I mean, there's a, a husky in our kennel, but that would even still be considered a sporting breed, just not a a, work, a working a dog, working maybe. breed. Yeah, working. Um, yep. But we just had a dachshund and a chug, a chihuahua pug mix. In for some um, obedience training. In for training. some yep. obedience training. And I maybe the dachshund could be potentially considered like a hunting working dog way back when. Um, but um, definitely, They still do some. But. Some, yeah. This one not, um, for not sure. Yeah. But the chug, definitely mm, not. Nope. Just nope. a designer just breed. obedience dogs. I mean, but the, so I've heard that the, um, the vibrate can be more aversive than actual stimulation and it's usually our go-to because it's typically not with our dogs our dogs have um you know a higher level of drive or desire and it becomes a really 
low pressure, light, easy way to communicate with the dog, communicate with the dog and build conditioning around a behavior. And it says, Hey, focus in these low distraction situations. It's enough to pull them as a, you know, almost a cue in itself to say, Hey, redirect their focus, make them make sure we've got their attention when we're giving them that cue. Uh, so they can pay attention to it, pull their focus back to the training situation and us. And the vibrate, not only can they feel it, but they can also hear that buzzing near their ear. If you grab a collar and you press the vibrate, you can hear it vibrating as well as feel it. And if it's right up on their neck by their ear, those dogs can definitely hear it as well. So it's able to utilize two senses in this conditioning process. But then we utilize the e-collar to redirect focus. Typically in our program with the dogs we're working with, if I have a dog that I ask to do something and we try and use vibrate first, maybe not in that situation where we know they're not going to respond, but we use vibrate first and then they aren't responding to that because their, their focus is pulled toward a bird or something to sniff or whatever is more important to them at the time. We will find that lowest level of stimulation that's going to pull their focus back. And then we'll go back to typically using vibrate to say, all right, now complete this that you already know. Yeah, and just remember that. So this is, you can avoid that stimulation that may have been slightly uncomfortable by just complying to vibrate. And also for you as the trainer, remember that when I'm in this situation, especially if you tried vibrate and you had to go to stimulation, remember in that situation that vibrate's not going to work. And I I hear so many people that say, well, I'm going to use tone or I'm going to try to get there. I'm going to warn them first or something like that. Or I'm going to ask them first. And if they don't listen, then I'll, then I'll use the collar or do, or, and especially if they use the collar in the wrong way. So it, it just, as the trainer, remember that, that, you know, when I'm hunting in the field, my dog just doesn't vibrate, doesn't work, you know, it's because for some dogs. anything that you're doing with your dog consistently, they're being conditioned to. So if, you first try vibrate and they just blow it off. They're conditioning themselves to understand that I can just ignore vibrate. I don't have to listen. And then the real, you know, and when that happens in the field, that's when you're, so they also understand the environment that they're in and they say, Oh, when we're out hunting, he vibrates me. Then he yells a little bit. Oh, then he nicks me. Oh, now I better go. Yeah. And so now it turns into vibrate, yell, That nick. has to be the cycle every time. Right. And, so and they're waiting for it. Right. So just as the trainer, remember that and say, oh, yeah, vibrate doesn't work. And just go to the stimulation level that gets the response that you need And I think that, that what Ethan was mentioning is once you get their attention focused and back, a lot of times you can switch back to vibrate then once mm-hmm. you've redirected their focus and complete the task with that vibrate instead of completing the task at those higher levels of stimulation, which were necessary to pull your dog's focus back to you, but not necessarily necessary for them to complete the task. We actually right. saw that very recently in training, working with a dog here that has a lot of prey drive and desire, specifically around retrieving. And it was one of those things that He went out to make a retrieve and picked it up and was trying to shop basically or go. There were multiple bumpers or multiple opportunities and he was trying to pick up multiple of them. And even with singles out there, he's running out, he's grabbing it and he's trying to do this like parade loop. Well, when we hit vibrate with that specific dog you were talking about, um, he would kind of continue that parade and he's ignoring it. So it took a higher level of stimulation. Now, as soon as you pulled his focus back, if you stayed with that, it, and it took a little bit higher level of stimulation to get that focus, 
If you stayed on that level, it was too much because now that you have his focus, he's no longer overtaken. Yeah, distracted and overtaken by the the drive and desire to go make the retrieve. So being able to switch back to vibrate was able to make a very consistent situation there. So he would go out, you could pull focus back with stimulation and then switch to vibrate. Because if you stayed with stim, it was too much and he would end up dropping the bumper or, or something else would happen. But if you stayed on vibrate, he would end up making a, a almost perfect straight back recall with the retrieve. Once so you got his focus pulled back to being able that to, recall. Yeah, being able to use both can be very beneficial. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, they've people have said that the, one of the greatest inventions in dog training was the variable stimulation collar. So don't feel like that it's an on-off button. Use yeah. use all of the... Yes. You, there's a reason that it has vibrate, and in DT's case, 16 levels. Use them. Yes. Don't, don't feel like you're stuck in one little box. Yes, for sure. Uh, that was a really great way that you were talking about the... Um, other obedience-based only dogs using collar conditioning because we had a question actually from Eric Melfaro on Instagram. Would you recommend using an e-collar on a dog you don't plan on hunting with? Yes, definitely. Um, Obedience training is one of the things that we reinforce with the e-collars almost more than the hunting stuff because I'm not necessarily um, reinforcing in the beginning stages dogs learning to point. I mean, that's all natural. So uh, when we get into the more advanced stuff with formal woe training and collar conditioning to woe, which we've got a whole series coming out with Legend, um, part two was just released recently, and part yep. three will be out next weekend. Um, but in the beginning stages, we're not collar conditioning those dogs to do those things. It's the obedience side of the training that we're collar conditioning, the recall, the healing, the place training. Recall, 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 recall. Recall super important, if you can tell. Most people... There, even people I know, friends, you know, people that I help with their dogs that just have pets, recall. If the dog will come back to you, it solves a lot of problems. A lot of problems. Yes. Now, it makes your life so much more fun. And, and you can do so many more things with your dog when you have a solid recall. You can go to the park and you know you can throw the ball and you don't. You, you can call the dog and it will come back to you. There's a huge difference, though, and I want to point out this difference in having a solid understanding of recall and having a dog that is apprehensive of the collar and runs back to you. Yes. And that is the biggest mistake that I think that people say, or I hear from people is, yeah, this collar is magic. And they are legitimately believe that the collar is magic, not magic, but it's awesome because it instantly fixed their problem of their dog would not come back to them. Because that's the thing. It's like, I got a collar because my dog didn't listen and come back to me. Well, I just shocked them, and then they came back to me. Well, fear response. It was a fear response, you know, and you can get both. I think it's a pretty common one for dogs to feel apprehensive and then cling to their owners or they're cling to the situation that makes them feel more comfortable out of time, their owners. But the other response you could have in that situation is they run the other they way. They bolt. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then they're gone. And um, because we can use the e-collar as such a powerful training tool that's not only necessary for recall but can be used for place training and healing, those things aren't going to be magically fixed by just pushing the button. Uh, the dog needs the training and needs the understanding of the collar, which you are really good at segueing me into my next question. It's like he knows me or something. So I do what I can. The next question is also from Instagram, Jansen.Anthony. If I mess that up, it's because my circle circled the name a little bit. Love Yawa. Yay. Especially right now, training a new GSP. 
Yes. Question for you guys is that our new DSP is petrified of the collar, which is what we were just kind of talking uh-huh. about. Even when it's out with one of the other dogs, she cowers and runs to the kennel. She's still young, 15 weeks, and we have only introduced it to her once. How do we get her more comfortable and where do we go from here? So I have to say that you are not alone in this. And we have seen a ton of questions about dogs being apprehensive to... Or startled, at least at the minimum, by their collar. Yep. And I think that most people are following along with what we are saying, which is typically getting a collar that has a vibrate setting and using that as their basic introduction. And that is what brought me up to what I'd heard in the past, which I have not personally experienced it as the majority, but it definitely sounds like the people that are at least reaching out to us are having some issues. And I think that um, I'm going to say a couple different things with this, one of which is if you are trying to work through vibrate and your dog has this um, bad response or negative response in your first introduction to the collar, I, I have to say that there are some stability issues that need to be worked by, through as well. A dog that is that easily startled by something as small as the vibrating box on their neck, we probably need to do some other things that involve a little bit more socialization. And building a bolder, confident dog, developing yes. that dog so that simple things like the vibrate. And then potentially if you're looking at hunting, um, that gunfire introduction, when it comes time to do that, isn't going to be as big of a situation for that dog. And the next part of that could be that um, not all dogs fit in the same cookie cutter. And that is a big thing that time we, frame. Yes. Uh, time frame is another 15 weeks for that dog may be too young. And it may be better to work on um, something with a long line or positive reinforcement and then maybe come back to it. it it's hard to say without knowing the dog. Without knowing it a can, little bit It can more definitely detail. be, I mean, 15 weeks is, you know, we, 14, 15 weeks is generally when I think we all start it. But that's not right for every dog. And that's no. why when people are like, I want a step-by-step plan of what age I do what things with my dog. We're really it's, hesitant to write that. Yeah, I mean, and we're working on that right now of this lesson plan of the averages of typically you can start this now and go to this next step then and giving ages. But A, if you haven't done all the groundwork, the ages aren't going to matter. And B, like Charles was saying, not every dog is ready for that level of training at those certain times. Dogs are slower to mature. Some breeds are slower to mature. And if you just get caught up with an age of, well, you know, Standing Stone Kennels, their lesson plan here recommends starting collar conditioning to recall or place training from 12 to 16 weeks. Anywhere in there, I can do it. Well, your puppy falls right in there. It's 15 weeks. And now your puppy's afraid of the collar. Well, that's not what we intend. And that's not what we want. We want the dogs to be bold and confident and ready for the training by following the groundwork, following the, you know, prerequisite steps to get there, and then being able to evaluate and read your puppy for yourself. Um, We can't get our eyes on every single dog. And that is where that Patreon community comes in, where we can visually see through these video exchanges, your training sessions. And we could say, hey, whoa, 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 your puppy's not ready for collar conditioning. They seem a little, you know, timid or just they need a little more socialization. Or you did throw that collar on, had that bad training experience and you videoed it and you put it up and you go, what did I do wrong? 
why isn't my puppy responding the way some of your puppies in your videos did? And we can say, we can definitely give you direct feedback. What we saw that happened. Yep. So again, that's patreon.com slash standing stone kennels. You can sign up there to be able to get direct feedback from us. Now there is a question that often gets asked, you know, do I get anything additional with this or where is my plan or where are the extra videos or anything? And I want to be clear with this really fast that that specific platform is there for you to be able to ask us questions, especially if we don't get to your questions here, you want answers, you can reach out to us there. Um, and with your specific training situations via video responses, you can um, show us what's going on and we can give you direct feedback on your sessions. So this is a really great question as well. And I definitely want to hit on it about e-callers. It says, there's a lot of controversy behind e-callers. What are the pros and cons of using one from Lan Crawshaw on Instagram? And I think we've kind of been talking about those a little bit right now about the pros and cons. Um, the pros are that you're definitely going to be able to reinforce all of your obedience-based training. Um, it is a, you know, depending on the model of e-collar you have, some of them have a two-mile range. That's a two-mile leash, basically, that you have attached to your dog for safety and to be able to make sure that your dog's not going to run off and get into a potentially dangerous situation, whether that's crossing a road, chasing a deer, and getting lost. Um, all of these things that could happen when your dog isn't on a lead with you. And now, I think that... Although if you think of an e-collar on the, on the good side as a continuation of a leash, I mean, think about if you really jerked hard on a dog and really pulled hard with a leash and a flat collar, you can hurt them. And just like if you really hit them with an e-collar, you can also hurt them. So any dog any training tool, tool used, used absolutely. Correctly so if you think of the e-collar like you are continuing it from a leash and just use it in moderation, use it correctly, use it with something that they already are fully aware of, know how to do, then it can be done. It can, it can be that long. It can be replaced that long leash. It can be a two mile leash. So my, um, argument for, or however you want to say this exactly, um, in the way that I would bring it up to different dog trainers and different dog enthusiasts and everything is, um, I think that very few people could argue with the fact that timing is one of the most important things um, in order to develop and train a new dog. Timing is the key to that, which is why we specifically use clickers and all of our positive reinforcement training um, because that allows you to mark specific timing and it sound exactly the same, be exactly the same for each time. But that timing is allowed to be extended into your collar conditioning training and more advanced training by having the button. You can push that and it happens there. If the dog makes a mistake when you get into some of this more advanced stuff where they are at a distance or they're out in the field or whatever, that timing is completely lost. Other than your verbal correction that you can have good timing on. Um, but again, it may not mean enough. When I'd go as far as to say timing is the most important thing. Yes. It can, I it, would agree with you. It can change. What would be more important than timing? I can't think of anything. We'll come back to that. If we think of something that would be more important than timing in dog training. What do y'all think? Throw it in the comments below. If you think there's something that's more important in your dog training sessions and, and in dog training in general than the timing, timing and everything. And in, for, for an example that um, to show how important timing is and the power of timing with clicker training, you can go to mark something 
And if you are off with your timing just a little bit, and, and let's say the dog is going to sit. They or load the dog a lot is, of times. So puppies will load where they like look like their butt's about to hit the ground, but they're actually loading it. to launch at you. And, and the timing ends up being that you mark them on the way up or you mark them doing a specific paw flip or you mark them doing anything. That timing is what they saw and that's what you're going to see repeated. So timing. Timing is so important and the e-collar is a super powerful tool to be able to make sure that your timing is correct in all of your yeah. training. So getting back to just finishing up that question about and the cons of using one, I think the cons of using one are improper introductions and just improperly using them overall. Uh, they are such a powerful training tool, but if they're not introduced properly, working on conditioning and then proofing that collar as well as you know, working through any startling reactions that you get with your puppies at the beginning of those introductions, um, is where your cons are going to come in just because you haven't been using it right. To be a, to play a little bit of a devil's advocate maybe as far as the cons go of having any color would be um, some people I think say that they, that they would end up becoming reliant on the collar and they have to always have the collar in order for their dog to, reply, to respond to what they're asking or to do what they're saying. And I believe that um, if you, again, aren't doing your training properly, that's going to end up being the case. Um, and, and I think that that becomes wrapped up around improper use in general. Yep. A con of an e-collar would be improperly using the e-collar because I hear all the time, all the time, I never even have to charge a transmitter. I never even have to turn the I don't even on. push the button. I just throw it on them and they're so much better behaved. Well, that's because you have a dog that is quote unquote collar wise and collar wise is not fixed by the dog wearing the collar for X amount of time before you ever push the button. Collar wise is built by not using the collar properly when the collar needs to be used and not having realistic expectations of the dog or following through with what you're asking. Timing. So, timing. That, that this is wrapped right back into timing. Yep. So, I think this is a good one because Annie's been pretty quiet. Oh, great. So we're gonna we're gonna all let Annie answer this one because <laughs> it's a good one for you. From Maximus Prime thirty seven on Instagram. Maximus Prime. How do you tell when a dog is ready for e collar introduction for the come here command? Well, I would say if you've done your positive reinforcement, say with your clicker training, once they've gotten that down. Um, for us, we usually do it, it's hard to do with one person in the beginning with puppies, so we are usually doing it together. Um, once they start anticipating, you get to kind of play tricks with the puppy and call them back when they're automatically going back to say, Charles, we'll call them back to us. Um, like we stated earlier, we usually do it around 14 to 16 weeks, but it all depends on the puppy. I mean, there's some puppies at 14 weeks where you just have to put the e-collar on them and let them just get used to it on them because they've not had it before. Um, but for us, as long as they're responding to the clicker training and the command that you choose, we use here, um, that's usually when we'll put the collar on and start using vibrate and just incorporate basically that same process from the clicker training um, into the collar conditioning. Very short sessions, and you always want to end on a positive note. Is kind of where we... Land. Yeah, we make sure that they fully understand what we're asking them to yeah. do before yeah, we ever. Yeah, the clicker training solid in those controlled environments. Yep. I typically use as like one of my benchmarks is that clicker training is solid in those controlled environments inside the house. When I've got their focus, 
But when we start going outside for potty breaks and things like that, and they start ignoring me, you start to see that boldness and independence. Quite a bit of independence. Where yeah. they're like, man, yeah. I think I'm just gonna go run over to these bushes, or uh, I, I think can the hear homing you pigeons calling. are way cooler than you. So yeah, I'm gonna just ignore go you. Check mom. out the pond. <laughs> There's yep. usually something, and you're like, oh, it's time for a collar conditioner. Exactly. It's- that boldness, that independence starts showing itself, and you go, well, you're not listening in these uncontrolled in- situations anymore, but you're really solid when we've got a controlled training you know, session going on. Now we need to be able to transition so that I can have a good recall response in these more distracting situations. So, And that's different for every single dog. Yeah, absolutely. sometimes we've got a 12-week-old puppy that is just bold, confident, super independent, and starting to just wander off. And I'm like, well, we can't have this now, can we? And then I've still got some puppies that are glued to my side when we're outside at 16 weeks. Sprig was well, a great example I was going to say, that, that changes based on breed and personality. Yep. I mean, I don't think we started Sprig's collar condition until he was almost six, seven months old. Yeah, he was very cooperative. Um, not typical super- short hair, a more independent dog by nature. Um, we're usually stuck. And how, that's how they're bred. You know, yeah. They're, that's what they're, they're supposed for. to be independent. Exactly. Yep. So those were some really great questions. I think that that's about all we have time for in this episode. So thanks for asking these questions. Like I said, we had a very strong theme on e-callers this time. So we wanted to get to as many of those as we could. Thanks guys for watching. We will be back with part three here shortly. I'm the guy with the pink gun. I'm Kat, the dog trainer. I'm Annie. And I'm Charles. Push one of your buttons. A good one. Uh, <laughs> so <lovely>. Angels. <laughs>
So if you I need mean, to use them in the water, they do. It's, they I'm do. Just, it's true. They swim pretty good. Pigeons always flop back to the shore. Chuckers swim away. Interesting. Good to know. So if I have to pick one. I think that I would honestly pick pigeons. Wrong. Uh, it just pigeons? It doesn't necessarily. Cat, you're not wrong. What it's breed just of pigeons? You're not wrong. You're just not right. <laughs> Well, let me tell you my reason. I've actually got a good reason. You guys are like giving your crappy reasons. So I would probably pick a (laughs) pigeon. um, And most likely it wouldn't be a homing pigeon because I wouldn't want to be shooting them. I would use just barn pigeons, feral pigeons. But I would still use those like I use my homing pigeons for my positive pigeon drill. So every time I throw a pigeon, I know I'm throwing $5 away. But... Hopefully you'd be able to accomplish what we're looking to accomplish in this drill with only a few of those pigeons being just thrown. That's how I did my Because you puppy. didn't have homers at first. Nope. Yep. So um, I, I remember used... you specifically calling me about this and you're like, so how do I do this? Because I don't have homers. I'm like, you go get a bunch of feral pigeons. <laughs> and and to be fair, them. they were like 250 then. Yeah, yeah a, pigeons, much, have, pigeons have got, everything's gone up, but pigeons have yeah. definitely gotten more expensive. So I would still be able to use them for my positive pigeon drill. I'd be using them the same as I would my homers for starting pigeons and launchers, and I wouldn't be shooting those again. So I'd be letting the birds fly until my dog is showing me a solid point. Then I'd be able to start shooting those pigeons for the dog Um in launchers, mm-hmm. and then I would move probably to my formal low training so that I have that um, level of control. And then I take my dog hunting mm-hmm. because then they'd get on game birds, and birds make a bird dog. And once that dog understands how pointing works and the importance of pointing and being able to be reinforced with the collar for that pointing, the first bird that they game bird, chucker, pheasant, quail that they actually interact with. In a hunting scenario, uh, they're probably going to bump it. They're probably going to make a mistake. I was just going to say, you better have some discipline because you're going to have to watch some. No, no, I'm saying personal discipline. If you're going out opening day in the first with your new puppy and you see him working a bird, I would be thinking about this continuing in my training mentality. Absolutely. um, My dog is going to learn to point on game birds by hunting them. And once they make a couple mistakes, I make some corrections, then they're going to start recognizing that scent as being important, um, and they're going to point them. This has actually happened to me before. Similarly, um, at a test, I was actually prepping dogs for a test. I'd used chucker because that's what we had to train with. Um, We don't typically get a lot of quail for Novda Natural Ability puppy training tests because most chapters use chucker, Um, but I actually went to a Texas test, and they had quail, and I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Uh-oh. My dog's never These been dogs on a quail. Have never smelled quail. And they're before. puppies. And they have pointed chucker, but not quail. So what's gonna happen here? Uh well, I'll tell you what happened here. The first dog ran in, bumped her first quail, and I was like, this might not be good. She went in and pointed and slammed second, third, and fourth quail. So she made that recognition of this is a bird that I shouldn't have busted. I should have pointed, and she made that connection with one bird. Um, so you want pigeons. We get it. Chucker. I still am going to go with a chucker because I think that we can get more done in the field. So we have a dog that's a little bit, has a better foundation or understanding what's going on that did not involve launchers. If we have quality birds. Okay. 
fine. I go pigeons. <laughs> Ooh, Chucker. did you really change? Yeah, I changed. You got him. I go with pigeons. I go with a pigeon because I can control things to make it as realistic as possible with launchers and then put them on birds. Now, if I have to train dogs with <laughs> just one bird, and you're going to talk my, yourself back into Chucker. No, I'm not. If I have to train with just one bird and it's my go-to, I'm going to definitely find somebody else to team up with that, that has, has access to <laughs> another type of bird. That is a well, complete per- so cop-out. Chucker, pigeons, you're perfect. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sharing my It's a great question. It's a great thing to think about. And um, definitely what it comes down to is you're going to need more than just one bird um, to get the job done. So... Moving on to our next question, because this is supposed to be a shotgun round of getting through these fairly quickly. Forever underscore GSPs on Instagram. Hey guys, I'm wondering about what your suggestions are on breeding times for dog heat cycles. How many heats do you wait between breedings and why? So this is a really good question, and I definitely think that- There's a ton of controversy around. I was just going to say that. I think that if you ask um, 10 different breeders, you're probably going to get 10 different questions or- answers and the dogs are different we just bred our one of our females on our third heat cycle and she's four yep and so there's a lot that goes into making decisions about breeding um, dogs first of all breeding dogs is not easy Um, some people like to think that it is but if you actually are truly trying to better the breed like we are um, you're looking at health clearances for those dogs before you even get to the point of breeding. You're looking at testing those dogs through hunt tests to prove what they have the ability to do so that you can show that that's the potential of what their offspring is going to also produce. And you're looking at genetic pedigree programs to say, these dogs are going to be good crosses for each other. And that's before you even do a breeding with those dogs. Um, Typically, we wait until the dogs are at least around two years or have had a second heat cycle is our go-to answer for that? Yeah, I I think that um, a lot of times the second heat cycle is when the dog is considered sexually mature. Um, But if a dog cycles really early, I'm still not going to breed them at, you know, and they have a six-month cycle. You know, she said an age and it's a, there's a roughment around two years old. And I think that that was all derived around OFA's testing. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't be certified until the dog's two years. And there are some other tests out there now that are saying that they can get consistent results with things like hips, pen hip testing before the dog is two. So there are a few things in there that can come and play, but definitely the dog needs to be mature. We don't need puppies to... having puppies. No, it's and not. Not only are they physically and sexually mature, but also like mentally mature in a sense of they yeah, need to be able to absolutely. be good mothers and care for those dogs. And on the flip and side, puppies. for you, you know, um, it's it's a big commitment. I mean, you have to be willing to lose that female. There's a the potential for sure. that. And it's so, always a ri- there's always a risk. So it's so, not like, oh, I'm just doing this because it would be fun to have puppies. Pyometras or other uterine infections. I actually, we, we had one recently, and this was um, not us personally. We've been very fortunate not to have issues, but uh, knock on something, a bunch. Um, I mean, we have some small issues, but nothing big. And this, this um, dog actually had uterine Torsion, torsion. Mm-hmm. and almost died, lost the entire litter, and she almost died herself. So, and I ask um, 
Peter, you guys have met or seen him if you've watched some of the other videos, and he said that uterine torsion is extremely uncommon in dogs. It's more common, I think he said, in cats and maybe horses or something. But I think he said cats just because they're they they're more nimbly bimbly, um, <laughs> nimbly bimbly, nimbly 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 bimbly. Wasn't expecting to hear that tonight. So uh, with that, getting a mentor to help, you know, like but, yeah. reaching out reaching to somebody out that has somebody. done this before, if that's the breeder you got your puppy from. Like Please don't breed just because you want your grandkids to experience right. puppies. That's not a great answer. Because I like mean, Charles said, you've got to be un- understand the risks that you could lose the entire litter of puppies, some of the puppies, you could lose mom. Mastitis is always a risk um, of something that you can watch for, you need to watch for with your moms, um, as well as like preeclampsia with the moms. Um, preeclampsia would be milk fever, quote-unquote calcium, calcium deficiency. deficiencies. Yep. So these are all things that you have to watch for and be very aware of when you're looking at the potential of breeding dogs. But to get back to answering your actual question, uh, we digress here about (laughs) suggestions on breeding times for dog heats. Charles was saying, well, that depends on every dog because they bred some dogs at day seven. I've literally bred a few dogs at day 40. Yep. Because their heat cycles have kind of... breeding time like when the dog... Breeding times for dogs heats. And so that is a huge window of day 10, day seven, There's really only day one way to know 20, day 40. Progesterone. Progesterone. Run the, only the way blood you know. work. Run the blood work. Do not Every guess. Every two to three days. Science. All you can do. Yep. Because especially yeah, a young male might be excited and try no matter what, or an experienced male, I or should say. Or a young male may not, yeah, not be interested, quote-unquote interested at all. Because they're not truly sure of and what. An experienced male may just say, oh, yep, I know what to do. Yeah. And breed anything, whether she's truly prime time of breeding or not, whether she's re- actually ovulating or not. And then those young dogs that are inexperienced and unsure of what they're doing um, may not know when the dog needs to be bred, or the female might just not be super friendly. They get the name bitch for a reason sometimes and they can give cues to that male of you better not try and breed me because I'm not going to be happy about it um so blood work is your best indication of when that female is truly ready to be bred and is truly going to be ovulating so running progesterone levels is our go-to we've been very successful with running progesterones and every once in a while something happens where a female doesn't take um, and there's typically an extenuating circumstance about, you know, why that didn't happen. Um, but still, it's Mother Nature. It's just like people. Yeah, we don't get pregnant every time we try. No, and, and that's it. it is, it's Mother Nature. And it's Mother Nature on a drastically more um, primal way. I mean, it's they're, if they're not able to get bred or something like that, I mean, there's usually a reason for it. It's just like... Um, there's a lot of things to talk about this. Specific timing, though, is is important. I have a feeling this one's going to spawn some more questions. Yeah. Um, if you have more questions, throw them in the comments. We'll answer them <laughs> and later. How many heats do you wait between breedings and why? Okay, so this one I have a really big opinion on. And the biggest thing is that when a dog goes into heat, their body says, I'm ready to have puppies. They pretend to have puppies, whether they get bred or not. And that includes dropping eggs. And if those eggs are not fertilized, they can become cysts and you can have all kinds of problems. Now, when the dog's body goes through an actual pregnancy, everything stretches out. This happens to women as well. 
they um, skip a cycle, everything tightens back up. And there are a lot of people and specifics that go around saying that it's easier for them to not actually tighten up and then stretch all the way back out and then tighten all the way back up and stretch all the way back up. And so, have those eggs that are not attaching and creating cysts. People um, also get surprised about falsies, right? Yeah. We get them. We have two I, that we have, have them. We have two every that time. get one every well, single time. Well, they're going to. I yeah. mean, because the, their body is the, truly yeah. thinking it's yep. pregnant every time it Whether has a cycle. Yep. Produce milk, everything, the yep. whole nine yards. Nesting, 100%. nesting all of it. That cute. would be more common than them not. Right. So the, the thing is, if you plan to breed, do it while they're early, while they're younger, healthier, and then spay them. Be done yes. with it. Don't um, go, oh, my dog's nine. I need to get puppies out of them now or something. It's not ideal. That's the least healthy way to do it. It's the same with women, um, you know, waiting till we're much older to start having um, babies. I was going to say puppies. Um, (laughs) Is definitely think about that as a seven or eight year old dog. I mean, that's in that's in the vicinity of fifty plus. And there's definitely more complications that can happen in those pregnancies and the health of the. The dog is always our number one priority. So if we ever see litter sizes decreasing, moms having complications in those pregnancies, uh, persistent mastitis, things like that, that's typically an indication to us that they should not be bred anymore. And we're going to retire them from our breeding program because like we keep coming back to every time you breed a dog, there's a risk that you could lose them. And if I'm seeing signs that breeding them is not going to be beneficial um, for their health, then it's going to be hard on them. I'm going to make the decision not to breed them anymore. Perfect. Okay. Next question. That's a great question. There's a, lot, there's, a lot, there's, there's a lot there. There's a lot, and we could go into much, much more information. Like Ethan, or not Ethan, Charles. Somebody said, um, if you are thinking of breeding to seek a mentor, was that you? Yep. Okay. I knew it was one of the guys. Um, that you will have be, a ton of questions, I promise. Eat from... The breedings to the puppies, and we actually have a new series out right now that we're doing with the Muddy Benny litter, showing the development of puppies and newborn puppies through the entire eight weeks that we have them. So that's a really great resource if you are thinking of having your first litter of puppies to see, you know, kind of an inside view of what we put into raising and developing a litter of puppies. So check it out. Can I ask another question? Yeah, okay. Just making sure we have time. Next question from J underscore 1080s. During the trained retrieve, can your dog still be a pet house dog or should they be treated like a kennel dog where the only thing they get out for is bathroom and trained retrieve drills? Well, that's not actually how our quote unquote kennel dogs or dogs here at the kennel are treated. So I don't know where that specifically comes from, but... Our dogs come in and hang out on the couch. Sure. They yep. come off the table, come out and hang on the couch. You just can't ask them to do the things that you're doing. That you're with trying the to train reinforce. Your and I think uh, that might be where they're going with it. There was another question very similarly to that question um, for um, Instagram, more X, I, 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 more X, the third. I don't know. Um, if I butchered it, I'm so sorry. But they basically were talking about. It was a really long question, but they only do their trained retrieve for about five minutes a day, maybe twice a day. Um, But they've noticed when they go out to the field with her and they start doing regular fetching drills where they throw the bumper out, she'll run back um, and sit by it. So I'm thinking that 
these are similar questions. Yeah. You're in the middle of, of the process. Yeah. When you're yeah. in the middle of a trained retreat process, you're and breaking that. We did that, talk about this a little bit last yeah. week. Yeah, you're breaking yep. that down into parts of a retrieve of hold, of fetch, of the recall, and the polished presentation. Um, and when you're doing that, you can't really ask those same behaviors out of your dog during just fun retrieves. So we recommend holding off doing any of the fun just messing around retrieving drills until you've completed that trained retrieve. But that be, doesn't mean that they can't be part of the family. No, yeah. it would be the equivalent or similar to um, uh, something. This would be a, a simple example. You're in the middle of trying to build a consistent recall with collar conditioning and whatever else. And you're like, all right, I've done a session or two and the dog's pretty good in this really low distraction situation. Let's go to the dog park. Or when they're puppies, if uh, we, when we do, when they're puppies is working on bumper drive and excitement to retrieve, the bumper becomes the fun toy. And in this case, the trained retrieve, it's, it's the training tool. And so when they come back in the house, they just have bones and other stuff. You just mm-hmm. don't work on that specific thing. Yep. Right. Absolutely. So I think we have time for one last question. Sure. Ask a couple more. Ask a couple more. <laughs> Why not? Why not? We'll try to actually make them lightning. Blair.Matthew88. Yeah, this isn't going to be a lightning one, but nice thought, Charles. You picked the question. I know. (laughs) What goals did you guys set for yourselves creating the business you have now, and what were some of the difficulties that came with it? Uh, I feel like you could do a whole (laughs) session on this This is definitely not going to be a lightning question. Why did you pick that question? (laughs) Uh, we had lots of goals. One of them was to uh, keep the lights on and feed ourselves. Um, then that is after one heck that, of a goal. <laughs> hey, that's where it started. Check. Okay, yeah. Check. Um, it, you know, as far as goals go, I think the biggest thing for me, from a business standpoint, is to be as honest and have integrity in business. And my goal is to do the best that I can with what we're doing for people. And when we do that, everything else seems to fall into place. So, yep. And I would just say that the biggest struggle that we probably had um, is when we started our business, it was just Ethan and I and dogs don't scoop their own poop. They don't feed themselves. They don't let themselves out to go to the bathroom and they definitely don't train themselves. So um, finding a balance between kennel life and our family life was our biggest struggle, um, especially yeah. for a very long time. We didn't have the resources to be able to have full-time employees. Um, we didn't have the people to pull from where we were living. Um, we were pretty much in the middle of nowhere, so there weren't a lot of options. Charles actually came and worked for us for a while. Uh, we stole him from Iowa, <laughs> uh, and then Annie stole him back. <laughs> so, Sorry. <laughs> you did have two horses, goats. We had a lot going on. We had a lot going on. Um, no children yet, though. Nope. So oh, we waited man. for that to happen until we were in a little bit different position in our lives. Um, but having just a way to balance work and family life was our biggest struggle. And that has changed. And it's been a really good change es- for us. Especially because you have to care for the dogs yeah. 24-7. 24/7. They're the most important part of the whole thing so yeah there's no days off right you can't just go oh well we're gonna run over and see my mom for the day you can't do that because you have puppies that can't hold their bladder for more than four hours you have everything has to revolve around the dogs and so and their schedule it takes a lot to finally get to a point where you can not do that for us we we 
take them with us. I mean, and we, that's yeah. we just where have to we bring were them at everywhere. for a very long time. Six dogs, they all just come with us. And if we got to let them out to potty, they that's what we do. So. Yep. Yeah. And we definitely had the same situation of, you know, if I was living or we were living in Kansas, my family was in North Dakota, that's not a four-hour round trip, I will tell you that. So if I wanted to go see my family, I went and saw my family, and Ethan stayed back yep. and held down the fort, vice versa. Um, you know, his family was in Kansas City. We were on the complete western side of the state, so just getting there was over five hours. Again, not a four-hour round trip, so he went to see his family. So we didn't get to do a lot of things together as a family, and that was difficult for those first five years of our business. And um, getting up, dogs need to be let out at 6 a.m. every day and let la- out last thing at 10 o'clock at night well, I every can even, single day. <laughs> yeah, I can remember uh, one time that you and I both got the flu. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, like a flu lasts 7, 10, 12, 14 days, and it was her and I. I mean, so imagine having the flu, going letting dogs out four to five times a day, and it's like I, they can't sit for seven to ten days. So Got to go training. do bird work. Yeah, we vomited in between runs. This is probably more information you want. But, I mean, it's like <laughs> – all right, lay down in the truck for a little bit. Okay, let's go set some more birds. We'll go do another run. I mean, that was... It really is 24-7, 365. Uh, yeah. There is no and break. It's, it's tough to make those sacrifices, and that's what we had to do at the beginning because, you know, I remember Ethan's little brother was getting married, and he was in the wedding, and I had to stay home. I couldn't go to their wedding, which, you know sucked. I mean, it did, but somebody had to take care of the dogs and we weren't in a position yet that we had any employees. So Ethan went to his family's get together, his brother's wedding, and I, you know, sent a card. And the same thing happened, you know, my dad passed away and that was in North Dakota. And luckily for that situation, Ethan was able to come with me, but we hauled a trailer full of 16 dogs up to North Dakota to take care of um, so that we could do that. So there's and always my dad into taking care of some of the rest of them. Yeah, I mean, we couldn't take all of them with us. So he actually came out and babysat dogs at the kennel for the three days that we were gone for funeral and preparations and family time. Um, so those are the types of things that were really tough and we had to make sacrifices in the beginning of growing our business and, um, that we felt were necessary sacrifices that we are glad that we were able to make then that got us to the place where we're at now, where we do have, you know, we have six employees right now that are able to help take care of dogs, give us the flexibility to sit here and do these Yawa videos and some other training videos, go to some shows and then it's time for let out. (laughs) <laughs> exactly We'd we be having... have dogs in the dog box right now yes. that we're gonna let out yeah we're done here and uh <laughs> there's <laughs> so there's always um the ability to grow and that has allowed us to do more with our business than we ever thought was possible absolutely thank you guys for being on our show this time thanks with for us. Having us thanks for having us and go walk your dogs <laughs> we're gonna use your exercise bed it's got a big bright light. That'll make it easier. You put that light up for us. <laughs> hey, guys. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in this week. We appreciate you all. We appreciate your questions. And definitely, again, if this is your first time to the channels, first time watching our show, um, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. Guys, I am the guy with the pink gun. I'm Kat the dog trainer. These I'm Annie. Yes. Yeah. Annie. I'm Charles. And we will Cut catch us you off. next time. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>